Nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. I'm Leslie Jane Seymour, and I'm a recovering editor-in-chief of magazines. I used to run, oh my goodness, YM, Red Book, Mary Claire, More Magazine, and now I have my own business. I'm a a new entrepreneur, and it's called CoveyClub.com. When you look at GDP, when you look at anything with bringing women into the workforce, it's better for everybody. It's better for children. It's better for the men. It's better for the economy, but power's hard to let go of, isn't it? This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Leslie Jane Seymour is an editor and entrepreneur who's led women's magazines such as Mary Claire and more. Also a past senior editor at Vogue, she discusses how women can hold their own in a competitive media industry. So, Leslie, how did your parents' divorce shape your view of money? Oh, key, major, you are tough. Wow, that's great. Um, It's really interesting. We were considered a pariah on the block because we were the only divorced family on the block. This is early 60s. And um, so it was shocking. It was the kind of thing that you hid. Like, if you could have hidden it, you were considered, you know, you had... And they were afraid. I had people on the block who wouldn't let me play with their kids because they were afraid it was contagious. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. This this went on back then. You know, today your kids say, why are you the only family that's together? (laughs) (laughs) What's wrong with my family? My parents have been in a 31-year-old marriage. And... um, For me, my mother and father ended up living very two different economic lives. My father was a doctor. He went off and lived a very splashy, international, New York City, fancy doctor life. And he kind of left my mother. And this happens a lot in divorce. Um, And she lived sort of, you know, a struggling middle class life. She had put him through medical school. And so for me, I looked at that and I said, I was kind of like Scarlett O'Hara in, uh, you know, Gone with the Wind. I said, this will never happen to me ever again. Um, And that was one of my driving forces. I said, I want to earn my own money. I want to be independent. I want to be in a relationship because I want to be in a relationship, not because I have to be. And that, you know, it's funny, something I pass on to both my kids, which is you need to be independent so that you can say at any point, hey, I don't like what you're up to. And if you don't change, I'm going my own way. And to have total financial independence was really key and a major driving force. And it breaks my heart when I see the number of women today who did not go that route. And now that I'm in my 60s, I'm seeing people who are struggling at the very end with ish. They're in, you know, they're in marriages that they'd like to be out of, but they didn't work. And so now they're kind of stuck. And um, that was just a driving force. You know, and it's, it's a funny thing because it was such a driving force for me that I had to talk to my kids about it at some point because when I was, you know, in my, say, 40s and 50s, we're living out in the suburbs, and my kids are saying, how come you're not home dropping me off like Oliver's mother? You're not home. You're, <laughs> And that was hard. It was really hard on me. And to a 7-year-old, you can't explain, this is my history. This is, <laughs> right. And um, But now when I talk about it, 
um, what's really funny, when I said to my son, um, who's now 28, I said, I sat him down because, you know, he's dating and whatever. And I said, so, like, what, how do you see your life? Like, do you want to get married? Do you want to have kids? Do you want your wife to work? And he was like, well, I want to get married and have kids. And he looked at me like I'd put a hair on a hamburger in front of him. Why wouldn't I? have a wife who worked. I said, well, it's a possibility. You, there's many solutions here. I'm just asking, like, you, you said, why would you even ask that question? I want a woman to be equal to me. I want her to bring in her own money. And I said, well, you gave me such crap my whole <laughs> life about not being there that he's mm-hmm. like, no, it's so important. You know, I want my wife to be independent. I was like, okay, wow. I had to wait, I had to wait 27 years <laughs> For this, but they both get it. And, um, you know, they're two independent kids and, you know, however they play it. And I have said, you know, I did say to them, you know, maybe I went a little too far. It was a little neurotic, but that was one of my driving forces. So you've held leadership positions at major magazines. Oh, yeah. And so I'm wondering what tips you would give to women who are trying to sometimes fight their way up that corporate ladder. You know, I will tell you, it is not easy. And it was, you know, luckily, I think there's more awareness today of what women have to go through and how hard it is. The, you know, the sexism and the men at the top are still there. Um, You know, somebody said once, I don't see a glass ceiling. I see a bunch of men's shoes above me. (laughs) And um, it's still there. Um, And what was really hard um, was the women above me, the generation ahead of me, were the first women to get into the boys' treehouse. And so they were really hooked on how they got in there, and they were exclusive. And they literally, they pulled the ladder up and they closed the door. And they did not help us at all. We used to call them um, men in skirts. <laughs> and, you know, they would act like men. They behave like men. Everything was a man except, you know, their anatomy. And I think my generation saw that and said, like, okay, I don't want to do that. And certainly you see the millennials coming up below us, and they're like, we're not going to do that at all. I think things are getting better in some ways. I think um, we're aware of what the situation is. I think my generation is heartbroken that we didn't get as far as we thought we were going to get. We, I honestly thought for my daughter— it was like done. I was mm-hmm. like, you know, we fix things. It's equality. You can go out there and make your own money. It's not done. And they're going to have to fight a lot of the battles that we thought we had fought. They're going to have to fight them again. People don't give up power easily. I don't understand the thinking because when you look at GDP, when you look at anything with bringing women into the workforce, it's better for everybody. It's better for children. It's better for the men. It's better for the economy. But power is hard to let go of, isn't it? You've said women are too nice. Do you think this plays into this? Yes. And I was definitely on that cusp of learning to be, you know, you had to be nice and you had to be tough. And, you know, you had to walk this line of like, you know, being, getting things done and yet not being a bitch, right? That was the the key. God forbid somebody calls you a bitch. And, um, I, you know, I think you get to a certain point where you're like, okay, there is no way to skin that cat. <laughs> and I found in my last job, which was all men at the top who were terrified of women, they would they used a euphemism. And whenever you would push back, they would say, oh, you're behaving emotionally. Oh, gosh. And I actually oh. had to go with my, I had to t- talk about to HR with the boss, a boss I had at one point where um, he brought up something and I just pushed back. I'd 
I didn't say anything and that other than we need to look at it a different way. And he said, oh, you're behaving emotionally. Luckily, the HR person was in the room. And I said to him, I said, I don't know why you're saying I'm behaving emotionally. Did I cry? I'm not crying. I didn't throw anything. I didn't raise my voice. I'm giving you an alternative scenario, but I don't understand why that's emotional. <laughs> I said, I'm talking about the numbers. Um, really don't understand what you're saying. And, um, you know, it goes underground. I mean, you read the stories. I mean, you know, I, I wrote a, a little piece for myself about when I heard that men were now afraid to go in an elevator with women alone because they were afraid of being accused of, you know, sexual harassment. And I was like, I said to my husband, my poor husband, I said, because he, he is a former Wall Street guy, I'm like, could you just explain this to me? When I get in an elevator, I am thinking about what I'm having for lunch. What are you guys thinking about? Like, really? Right. Like, I mean, come on. I'm thinking about whether it's, you know, the Cobb salad or the you are you guys are thinking about the chick behind you. Like, there's something wrong. We need to raise our kids better. And um, I think we're slowly, slowly becoming aware. And I think it's getting better. I see the millennials treating each other very differently. And I hope that they will. I mean, you know, I come home, I find my my son, he's making the meal and the girl is sitting there at the table. And I'll tell you, my lovely husband, who I adore, has not, he's, he's cooked one meal. He cooks box pizzas in 31 years. <laughs> it's like, so things are changing, yeah. but really slowly. Um, so some readers had a really strong emotional connection to Moore magazine. I know. How did you cope with that oh, closing? Horrible. When the dot-com bubble burst in the early 2000s. I saw that across the street at, you know, timing, they were they were literally firing 400 people at a time. Jeez. So I said, you know, this is not going well. Um, and that's when I, you know, luckily more was all about reinvention. So I said, okay, what's my reinvention? And luckily I had gone to, um, I went to Duke originally to be a marine biologist. And in my 20s, my science was okay. I was like doing okay, but not great. Put me in a writing situation. I'm getting straight A's, right? When you're in your 20s, where do you think the money is? Do you think it's like in the B minus area or do you think it's in the A area? Luckily in those days, if you had writing talent, you could make money. So I went off in that direction. And then about, oh, 15 years ago, um, when I was still running Mary Claire as editor-in-chief, I went to a Duke event and they had the head of the environmental school talking about climate change and what was happening. And I literally went home and I felt so overwhelmed. I was like, oh my God, I, you know, like I got to get back to this passion that I had about the environment. And I literally called around to schools and I looked, you had to leave your job and you had to, you had to quit school and go full time to get your master's. And I was like, I'm not leaving Mary Claire. This is my dream job. Why would I do that? And, um, then many, many years later, when I'm seeing my fifth boss come in, I'm like, okay, I've got to figure out something else. A friend of mine who'd worked at L'Oreal was talking to me about how she got her degree in sustainability management, which is really where the environment and business meet for win-wins, up at Columbia. And so I dragged her to my backyard, and I said, tell me about this. I want to learn about this. And you can do it at night? Like, how do you do it at night? Like, everything else, you have to quit your job. So she sent me up to the school, and I sat in the classes, and I was like, oh, my God, like, this is such a turn-on. It's so interesting, so different from what I do, um, and still a, a really old passion of mine. And um, so I applied. I thought I'm not going to get in. I went to the first class. I thought I'm never going to actually stay with it. And, of course, I had to hide it from my staff. I mean, 
here's you're in a business that is so rocky, mm. and now boss is going to get her master's degree? I see. She, like, the the ceiling's falling in. Like, what the hell's going on here? So um, that was the beginning of my reinvention. And then what happened was when the magazine closed, the readers were so angry, they all came to me and said, do something else. They came to me on my social media and then 627 of them took a survey, 54-question survey, if you know anything about research. No one will take a four-question survey today. So, And I mapped out literally what they said they wanted, and I did my minimal viable product from that. And um, a year ago, we launched. Coming up, Leslie Jane Seymour talks reinventing yourself amid constant change. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot WSJ. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. So what was the biggest adjustment about starting your own business? I didn't want to go back to being a writer. I said, I'm not going to be a writer, even though I love writing, because it's so lonely. It's so individual. You sit in your house. I was a freelance writer a couple times um, when my kids were little and I was transitioning jobs or whatever, and I wanted to be home with them. And it's a very isolating job. I mean, you're calling people on the phone, but you're really not connecting with anybody. I like being part of a team. I like running a team. So I thought, okay, I'll do this. But what you don't know is it takes two years to launch a project, Mm -hmm. and you have no money. So you got to hire people, and you can't hire people because you don't have any money. And then you got to find people who work with you. Anyway, it's two years of sitting at your desk. Um, Luckily, I had Columbia. I'm sitting – I'm doing now two tracks, right? I had – I had one reinvention plan interrupted by a second possible reinvention plan. And um, I am literally sitting at my table in the spring of 2016, right after they closed more. And I'm like, okay, this morning, should I learn how to do MailChimp, which I really need to do, or women in the Congo and and violence, how to handle (laughs) that? And I was, that was literally my day. But lonely, it's a, you're, it's very individual. And, um, so I decided, okay, let me two-track this Let's, because I don't know where my future is. Maybe I'm not an entrepreneur. I don't know. And um, I two-tracked, um, graduated from uh, Columbia like a month ago. I was probably Congrats. their slowest student. And um, then uh, launched Covey Club. It took two years to get it off the ground, and then a, a year um, after launching it, we're up in business. What advice would you give to women who want to minimize the career obstacles they face as they age? Whew, we need a new society. (laughs) I think we have to really, I mean, it it is really cultural because there are no excuses anymore for pushing older women out. And there is a distinct interest in saying, you're too old, you should go. And we're new, we're young, we're hot, whatever. Um, There is less and less value put on older people in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, even with low unemployment like this, it makes no sense. Um, 
also, we also know that people who have experience actually can bring value. But this is a youth-obsessed world that we live in in the United States. So what do particular. you do about it then if you're in that you have to You have to be aware of it. You have to be cognizant of it. You have to plan. I, I go around the country talking about how you have to have a reinvention plan in your back pocket because mm-hmm. it may not happen. It may not have anything to do with you. It's just that somebody new comes in and decides the old is going out and the new is coming in. Somebody new comes in and decides they can find two people to do your job for one-third of the price, and they move you out. Of course, age discrimination is illegal, but they have all kinds of ways of getting around it. I have a friend who actually saw um, what some HR people wrote in one company at the top of a a printed um, resume, which was T.O., and I don't think hiding your your history and I don't think, you know, getting a facelift and all that is going to solve our problems. I mean, yes, you should stay up to date and I think you should be aware. But I do think we are, we are working longer, Veronica, than we ever did. We need – it makes sense that we are going to have one or two careers. Again, I had eight years of preparation of watching the walls fall in around print. And I said, okay, I'm going to set myself up financially. And this is one of the things that I say to people – You need to have a financial backing for yourself, a year's worth of living that you can put towards your next reinvention. And guess what? You make it out on the first round and you get your gold watch and all that, go buy yourself a a house at the beach. Have that money. Put it aside so you have that option. And what I find with Covey Club, because we do an awful lot about reinvention, the last quarter of last year... I'm getting all the phone calls with people standing in the closet going, oh, my God, I think I'm about to be downsized. What do I do now? And I'm like, okay, you needed to do something starting five years ago. How do we reinvent ourselves if we don't know what we want to do next, though? Well, that's one of the processes, and it takes a long time. We start with, at Covey Club, we talk about creating your kitchen cabinet. And your kitchen cabinet consists of bringing together people who knew you from different phases of your life. Because when you're little, you have all these dreams and aspirations that we edit out of our lives. Because at some point, you realize you've been about, you know, been doing ballet class, and you're probably not going to be the next ABT lead dancer, right? And you're, you're parents are trying to, you know, convince you that you really need to do something else instead and, you know, all that kind of thing. So those things go away. But that doesn't mean that when you're, you know, a lawyer, you can't in your second life go out and and help work with a ballet company. But we drop all that. We, we completely, we move ourselves. It's like a maze. You just kind of keep cutting off the different um, venues for you to to move around in this maze, and we end up backed into kind of this little corner. And we're told we can, I get this phone call a lot in the last quarter, which is, you know, I've been moved into HR. They don't even think I can do that. Like, you know, you're just shoved into this corner and told you can't, you can't, you can't. And so you bring those people to your table. I say get pizza and rosé generally. Get everybody nice and drunk. Get yourself a whiteboard. Get yourself some big markers. And what you're going to ask them is, what do you, what, first of all, what do you remember about me and my interests when I was, and you want to get people, if you can, from grade school, high school, college, early work years, and you're really fishing for threads. It's like my thread from climate change and wanting to go back to environmental studies. You want to fish for those threads. What were as crazy as they could be. I don't care what they are. Just put them on the sheet. And then you're going to look at those with your friends, and you're going to say, of 
these 20 items that you remember about me. What are the three, like now that, you know, Jane's brought up this, Sue's brought up that, Adam's brought up that, it could be guys. Um, what are the three that stand out? And circle those three. And that's a starting point for you to say, oh, I, I, you know, I forgot. I really did like, you know, whatever it is. I was a, a baker as a kid and I used to sell muffins at the school fair, whatever. Is that something I want to pick up later in life? And there is a certain joy. It brings you full circle. You don't have to do that. But if you're struggling for an idea, and a lot of people are, it's a great way to go back and explore. And even if you don't pick one of those three, you've got 20 other things to start looking at. Finding, finding that idea is the hardest thing, people tell me. What career advice would you give to your younger self? <sighs> yeah, well, you know, I think I would have, I mean, I, I would have told her, don't take it so seriously. I mean, I used to take everything as just a personal, like, oh, my God, I'm failing. I mean, just we would get, you know, I mean, if you've sold anything before, if you've ever been in the sale, selling business and editors and chiefs of magazines, you were, it's kind of crazy. You're responsible for the sale of a product, but you have no control over where it's put out, how it's put out, the pricing, when it goes out, but yet you're <laughs> responsible. And Sometimes, like, you know, you could put the best thing out, get the hottest celebrity, best cover lines, whatever, and it just bombs. That just happens. And I remember many times, like, literally, seriously thinking, I'm going to throw up in my wastebasket. Because you took it so personally and you thought, you thought I could control this. There are things out of your control. There are irrational situations in business where they expect you to control things you can't control. And you either have to understand that you are not in control, and this is irrational, and you have to get that changed, or this is the way it's done and not take it so personal. I can only control the product. And then if other people don't do their jobs, I can't, I can't control that. It's like trying to control the plane from the passenger seat, which I, I do as many times, too. <laughs> I was going to say, how do you not take it personally, though, if they're blaming putting responsibility on you for certain things. Well, and then they also give you the kudos. Like, you know, right. they stick it out at the right day and, and a celebrity does something or says something and suddenly you're totally 100% irrelevant. You know, relevant. You get both. But the, of course, the one that they, they really come for you for is when it's a bomb, right? I, w I always thought it was kind of cockamamie the way that they sort of, um, the way that editors and chiefs were compensated for things they didn't control. I, I actually went to management a couple of times and said, this is kind of crazy. Like, we can't control certain things here. And, um, you know, it makes no sense. So some managements will listen, some will not. But those are the kind of things you have to look at um, and realize you, you, you have to let go of control. I mean, you, you, you have to let, you, you have to look at reality. You can only control so much. Time now for your secrets. I'm Leslie Jane Seymour, and my money secret is I never lived beyond my means. I never have a credit card that has any money on it. Be sure to check out our ebook based on the Secrets podcast. WSJ subscribers can download their copy of Resilience How 20 Ambitious Women Use Obstacles to Fuel Their Success for free on WSJ.com today. 
This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.